0: This is Sci-Fi Talk, the podcast on how sci-fi, fantasy, horror, and comics help us explore our humanity. And today we have Ann Hornaday, who is the film critic of the Washington Post. A few years ago, she wrote an article on how the films of the 1970s impacted us today. Yes, we do talk sci-fi and the films we all love in a moment. Hi, welcome to Sci-Fi Talk. And if you go to WashingtonPost.com, dot com, you notice that Anne Hornaday, who is my guest today, has an article about you know Hollywood's been through a tough time before, and we can t- we can learn from the nineteen seventies. Isn't that right, Anne?
1: Yeah, and it kind of hit <laughs> me uh, by accident in a way. I had intended to write about the nineteen seventies. I was actually going to look back at the year nineteen seventy because this mm. is the 50th, you know, the 50th anniversary of the year 1970. Wow. And yeah. um, I was sort of looking, looking at it, looking at the, the movies that came out that year and thinking a lot about the decade of the seventies and sort of how legendary that they were both artistically and in terms of the movie business going through so many changes. And I realized like, wow, you know, in many ways they were facing similar challenges, um, as it's facing today, clearly not a pandemic, but, you know, by that time, audiences were really turning away. I mean, they were not going to the theaters. They were having terrible, terrible years at the box office. And in similar ways, they were facing a lot of social change. You know, I mean, the changes in the culture and political, um, political statements and political activism found their way into the work. And the work was responsive to that. And so, I just thought, well, maybe there's an interesting parallel to be drawn here. And so that's kind of the journey that I took with the story.
0: Yeah, it was an interesting time. Films that came out of nowhere, probably the top of the list is Love Story. Nobody figured it would be the huge monster hit. I I have some problems with the movie. Um, Mm -hmm. and, And actually, it became a trope where the... A guy marries a woman and she gets cancer and dies. And that was like done to death after oh, this no. movie came out. But this was the first one. So, but how, you know, you mentioned Allie McGraw. Yes, she looked like, like the girl next door. But I thought her acting was a little suspect, despite some actually pretty clever dialogue.
1: Yeah, you're right about that. I mean, I had forgotten how... Um salty it is, you know, I mean, they, yeah. it's just a real sappy little thing, but, you know, and I think Allie who, who full disclosure, we met a few years ago, we were both at the Chautauqua Institute one summer yeah. and really became fast friends, to be honest with you. I mean, oh, cool. she's just absolutely one of the most lovely human beings that I know. And um, she very, very graciously agreed to be interviewed for the story. And she is so self-deprecating. You know, I mean, she was not <laughs> a trained actress. You know, she, she knows how limited, you know, the limit. She knows her own limitations. And I don't think she would ever, ever be uh, arrogant enough to, to say that she's a great actress. But um, but it really kind of fell. It, it fell into her lap in a way she had done goodbye Columbus. Yeah, um, and it was sort of on the strength of that that they they cast her in this opposite Ryan O'Neal, who who was a really seasoned actor because he was coming from paper, oh yeah and he was a huge heartthrob on that soap opera, um, but you know she touched a nerve and and in a way you know, even if she's not Betty Davis material, you know, in terms of her acting chops, she was an emotional instrument. You know, she was an emotional instrument in that film. And she did it, I thought, she did it really beautifully. And clearly, I mean, you're right. It's like, it just was such a phenomenon. I mean, it opened late in the year. I don't think Paramount really ever, I mean, I actually spoke with Peter Bart as well, because he was, um, Number two to Robert Evans, who was the head of Peter yeah. at the time, also oh, yeah. married to Allie. And, That's um, right. And Peter said they thought they they were really they thought I wouldn't say a dog they had a dog on their hands, but they didn't think they had a big hit. You know, they they were like, well, it's got some it's got some problems, and you know, it had done they, they had screened it and it didn't it kind of just didn't do much so they went in and re-edited it I think they changed the musical score but they really didn't think that it was going to be a big deal and mm-hmm. then it just took off like wildfire in many ways thanks to the novel I mean because they had they had accepted the screenplay by Eric Siegel and then brilliantly asked him to write a book a novel he, he basically wrote the novelization of his screenplay
0: Oh and wow!
1: that became the novel love story, and that was marketed by Simon and Schuster, which was also owned by Gulf and Western. Mm. You know, it was just this perfect right. example of sort of corporate synergy and yeah. real marketing brilliance in terms of letting that book create the demand for the movie, which it did. So it it just worked like a charm.
0: To me, what also stands out in in that particular decade was really it it kind of like a return to. The crime drama, and especially the gangster drama, in the form of uh, Francis Ford Coppola, his magnificent Godfather One, Godfather Two, liked a little bit, but and and kind of went back to things of Godfather One. But the first one was fantastic, and Scorsese was just starting to come into his own. Mean Streets, a little rough, uh, had its moment. You could still see that he was. Finding his technique a little bit, but certainly Taxi Driver is chilling, almost a yeah. little bit of a horror movie in my mind too. But yeah. both those guys literally spread their wings in this particular decade.
1: They did, and they were a part of that generation that Peter Biskin wrote about in Rage, uh, Easy Riders, Raging Bulls. And and I and I, yeah. I, I I take nothing away from them because they did revolutionize along with Robert Altman and Hal Ashby they did revolutionize movies, but I think we forget that a lot of other people were making movies during that time that weren't rebellious and weren't young. That's right. They, uh, there was a whole generation of directors coming from live TV, you know, people like Arthur Hiller and Arthur Penn mm-hmm. and yeah, uh, yeah. Frankenheimer, and they brought, I think, arguably, a lot of style. It might not have been as self-conscious, you know, it was a little bit more invisible but it was professionalism, you know, it was efficient, good craftsmanship. And Mm -hmm. so they were making work during that time, as were a lot of the old guard, like people like William Wyler was making movies, you know, I mean, um, maybe not the best of their careers, but it was a fascinating kind of collision of generations as well. So it wasn't just the young guys, like people like, you know, I always feel like people like Paul Mazursky and Frank Pearson, like they never get, they never get mentioned, you know, in that in that Easy Rider Raging Bull context. And it's like, That's they true. were making, you know, Alan Tukula and Sidney Lumet, like, yes. they were making outstanding movies. Um, but they didn't, they kind of didn't get tagged with, with being a, a generation, so to speak. But the Coppola thing, The Godfather was a, very much a product of a similar kind of approach that Peter and um, Bob Evans took to Love Story, which is that they bought the outline from Mario Puzo also asked him to write the novel, paid him to write the novel. And then, and, and then it was Peter, Peter wanted to put interesting filmmakers with accessible material. That was kind of their formula. And so he, I think it was his idea to see if Coppola wanted to do it. And and Coppola didn't, you know, he wasn't interested in the crime story. He wasn't interested in mobs. Thank goodness he reconsidered. And then the casting was just like Ugh. crazy, you know, I mean, Nobody wanted Al Pacino for that role except Fred Roos, who was a producer on the film and a brilliant, brilliant cast. He's not a casting director per se, but he's great at casting. very good. He really lobbied for Pacino. And just when you think of all the elements that came together for that movie that might not have, you know, like, uh, and then at the time, that was a huge blockbuster. Like that was the biggest movie. I mean, that was a phenomenon when it came out in 72. And it was considered... I think the biggest blockbuster of the time until a little movie called Jaws came along and then kind That's of rewrote right. the rewrote, rewrote the script for plot. But, you know, like I think it gave Hollywood the idea that blockbusters are about monsters and effects when in real reality, Jaws and Godfather were actually more alike than different in terms of just being about people. You know, like they were about, mm-hmm. Jaws was arguably a great movie because of the guys on the boat, not the shark. You know, that's I mean, right. That's what people related to, and that's what people loved, still love today. Because it did, you know, it's back out this summer in drive-ins. It's doing boffo business, and it's not because the shark is cool. That's that's a big part of it, but it's not the only part.
0: With that, the scene where uh, where Quint is telling Hooper oh. about what, when they when he went into the water, uh, you know, oh. that that famous submarine. You're sitting oh, there, the, and-
1: Indianapolis. Oh. The
0: Indianapolis. And then, of course, he's t- you're riveted by the story. And then Cooper opens his shirt and he points to his heart. And he goes, something like, Mary Jane, whatever. She broke my heart. And they all break out. And that moment, all three characters connected. Uh, you yeah. know, it was uh, And Roe Scheider's Brody, of course, was there. It's just a, a, an amazing movie. What I thought was brilliant that people don't give Spielberg credit for is the fact that that gosh darn uh, shark, Bruce, as he was lovingly nicknamed, never worked. Yeah. It had it had problems. Exactly. The salt water got into the gears, and it just didn't work. So when it did work, Spielberg and it actually was a blessing in disguise, because Spielberg That's could right. actually shoot could shoot the whale where your imagination filled in the blanks a little bit, and you That's didn't see perfect. the whole shark. And that's what saved the movie had it worked because even the scene where he eats Quint was kind of like, yeah, it's a fake shark. Okay. You know, oh, it's, it's totally. like, you know, but Robert Shaw exactly sold it. Right.
1: <laughs> that's <laughs> right. It, you know, and it's, I remember uh, speaking of Frankenheimer, he once told me, you know, directing is like, uh, it's like being a plumber, you know, like you're constantly fixing <laughs> things, you know, it's, it's really about problem solving you know yeah um and logistical things that come up that, that you can't control and then how do you solve that problem and some of the greatest movie moments are the result of that actually one of the moments in his movie the train is a result of that uh mm. he, he buried a camera he had an extra ca- he didn't know where to put it and he just was like well just set it over there and when they crashed the train spoiler alert when they crashed the train in the train yes. the wheel came right up to that camp that particular camera yeah, you have this beautiful shot of this wheel coming straight at you know, and it was a complete accident. But anyway, but you're right about the shark, you know. And and I think yeah. also, I think in the same way that Jaws was misunderstood as a monster movie, um, or a you know, an sex movie. I think Star Wars was kind of misunderstood by Hollywood as being like, okay, let's double down on space, sci-fi, fantasy, special effects, franchises, merch. You know, and and it really, again, the charm of that movie is the characters like it's, totally. it's so, you know, both Jaws and Star Wars, I think, are deeply humanistic films. And I think yeah. Spielberg, especially, is a humanistic filmmaker, no matter what he does, no oh matter what genre he's working in. He's like, you know, that's his that's his paint box, you know, his human emotion. And. Um, I just wish that Hollywood had taken that message away rather than, you know, like, let's just make endless sequels of things, you know? And and, uh, uh, anyway, so that was one of the lessons that I wanted. That was one of the kind of takeaways from the 70s that I wanted to kind of re-explore. Because I think Spielberg and, you know, the, the narrative is that Jaws and Star Wars kind of ushered in the era of the blockbuster and they destroyed all those, like, wonderfully kind of quirky you know, human-scale films we all loved. And I almost feel like it's, it's not really fair to those guys because I don't think they knew, I don't think they intended to make blockbusters. They were just, you know, they were making the movies they wanted to make.
0: More with Anne Hornaday and the films of the 70s in a moment. Back to the film critic of the Washington Post, Anne Hornaday on the films of the 1970s. Yeah, Star Wars changed everything. I was one of many... Yeah who was in line where the line wrapped around the theater. And I've never seen that since. It was pretty amazing. And um, one of the rare movies where I actually stood up with the, the whole audience stood up and and cheered at the end. It was very unusual to see that, but uh, they didn't know what to do with it. Uh, But it, it, uh, it literally gave George Lucas and so many. And then, of course it was followed the year later with superman and now right. we're, that was the beginning of the comic book uh thing that we're in right now so uh exactly yeah, it, it's all kind those, of part
1: of a piece yeah
0: yeah you know you you mentioned that about those movies that are that kind of like the smaller movies character movies that mm-hmm. are now kind of you know they're kind of relegated now to the independent market and you mentioned mm-hmm. a couple of great ones shampoo midnight mm-hmm. cowboy the last picture Mm. show last tango in paris i mean Mm. those were those are classics now and you know if they were made today it would probably be they would probably put it in the independent market and not want to finance them which is a shame because they're such beautifully made films i know
1: and they they, it's it's they're they're uh, it's the independent and also the award season. I think the award season has become kind of that's where you put that film. And I do think, to, you know, once in a while, a studio will make one of those movies, and it it will be for awards. Like that's when you're going to get like, um, you know. And I don't even know if the studios are, are actually financing them, but they'll at least distribute them and give them the, the marketing, you know, that they yeah. that they need. But things like Green Book and Hidden Figures and Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the Clint Eastwood movies, you know, I mean, things that are not necessarily franchise uh, properties, but then like those movies make money, you know, they do, they like audiences want to see those movies. It's not that there's not a market for them. Um, I guess it's just that the studios and and their corporate owners, I I guess they just figure it's not enough money, but I, 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 it never made sense to me that they wouldn't be in that business just because. Yeah they cost so much less to make um, and to market than those big comic book movies. And that's your return right. is potentially huge. Um, and that's they travel, right. you know, that's the other argument that I think the, the false argument that Hollywood makes, which is that, Oh, the comic book movies are the things that they can export. Cause everybody understands, you know, they're not, they're not hard to translate, you know, they don't need a lot of subtitles, but like green book did amazingly well in China, you know? Hmm. Um, I I just think there's a lot of mythology around that 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 needs to be unpacked, and I'm one of my concerns about the pandemic, uh, in addition to the concerns about people's health, yeah. Being, but in terms of the movie business, is that and when they're coming back, uh, when they're getting back to work and making movies again, I really fear. I mean, I I want to make sure that they are not just doing CGI and animation because it's it's Easier and safer, you know. Um, yeah. It's it's a little bit more of a complicated proposition to put people in front of the camera now, you know, and film them talking to each other and doing things together. And so I just I'm very concerned. I want I don't want that to go away. It's already threatened enough.
0: Yes, it is. And I'd be remiss if I didn't mention uh, a gem in the rough, as you said, Joe, with the great Peter Boyle. Uh, you oh know, my he was. God. It's just that talk about a portrait that was uh, that's a that is a that is like a, a, a little known classic that people everybody should see
1: it's so true and again that did really well that that came out that yeah. was one of those movies i was looking at for the year 1970 cuz that came out in 1970 yes it did and talk about i mean edgy tough little gritty little indie susan sarandon's very first role she plays a, a the daughter of a wealthy couple who she becomes addicted to drugs and she's dating her dealer and she's living this really scuzzy, scruffy life. Her dad is at a bar and meets this guy named Joe played by Peter Boyle, who is just this virulent racist, you know, virulent, anti, anti hippie. He was Archie Bunker, you know, and and it was funny because all in the family I think came out like six months later and he completely anticipated that character. Like he is, he's Archie Bunker, on steroids but he's just angry violent and he's a vigilante you know and he convinces this guy to kind of go on this vigilante anti anti anti-hippie uh rampage and it's just shocking it's like you're look, you're watching this movie and it's so it's just um it's really breathtaking and of course it's kind of pressure, you know, it's, it's very much the anger um, and the animus that drives it is really very resonant today, I think, in terms of the anger and outrage that a lot of people have. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, that's a must, as is the landlord. That's another one that I. Yes, it is. This story. <laughs> that's and right. That's just as fascinating You know, that's breathtaking, too. You know, that's yes. about a young man played by Bo Bridges, another son of a wealthy family. Yes. Uh, who who buys uh, an apartment building in Brooklyn and wants to gentrify it. And it's primarily inhabited by African-American neighbors. And he moves in, takes an apartment, moves in to fix it up. And it's just about his relationship, his friendships with these uh, people that he was setting out to evict. But it is the most, again, like you're just, some of the material in it is so confrontational and candid. And it it's such a layered examination of race and class. And it's even it even gets into colorism within the black community in terms of light skinned yeah. blacks having more privilege than, you know, like they call it light privilege than their darker skinned uh, friends and neighbors. And it is just like, it goes there. It was written by Bill Gunn. Um, it was directed by Hal Ashby. Yep, it was actually the first that. movie, but, but the script was by Bill Gunn and it was from a novel by Kristen Hunter and an African-American novelist. So I think Gunn and, Kristen uh, Hunter and Bill Gunn really brought that that authenticity and that voice to it. You know, that was it's just utterly like breathtaking. That's all I can yes. say.
0: Yeah. All right. Let's take a short break. We're talking to Ann Hornaday, film critic of the Washington Post, about the 1970s. We'll be right back.
1: This is Andreas Katsoulis, and you're listening to Sci-Fi Talk. I'm here with my friend Tony. You may remember me from great films like um, Stardust Becomes Electra. No, no, wait a minute. That was That's not even a title. No, I was the one-armed man in The Fugitive. I played Jakar in B5. And beyond that, probably you don't know me.
0: Back with Anne Hornigay, talking about the 70s in an article she wrote. On that period, which really launched a lot of careers, I do have to say, as far as horror is concerned, probably a film that is still considered a classic rosemary's baby and i'll tell you the look on mia farrow's face initially when she sees the baby and we're not shown the baby that tells you that says it beautifully says it all and then your imagination takes over what does this thing look like
1: (laughs) yes exactly
0: exactly less is more
1: yeah Exactly. More. That's visual storytelling. Exactly. That's another uh, Peter Bart, Bob Evans uh, joint. And, and it's another example of Bart wanting to put an interesting director with a um, accessible book because that had been a book. And initially it was optioned by uh, William Castle. I don't know if you remember William Castle. Oh my He's God. Guy, yes. You know, he was like Mr. Gimmick, <laughs> right? I mean, oh, absolutely. He was, like, he was, he was just, you know, he was a classic in his own Right. But it was not, it was not what you would call like grade A high class, you know, it was, it was, you know, and it was, um, Chakarama and like all that stuff. Yeah, the
0: Tangler and stuff like that. Yeah, (laughs)
1: yeah. But my understanding is Castle had wanted to actually, he did want to make a legit movie with this one. Like he wasn't going to make it into a schlock thing, but, um, somehow, uh, you know, they wheedled it out of him. I think he still has like a producing credit on it maybe, but, um. Yeah. They thought it would be re- really interesting to put Polanski because he had been primarily working in Europe till then. Like he had done Repulsion, uh, Nice in Water. So he Man. clearly understood t- th- those, you know, suspense and horror and psychological horror. And so what a brilliant, you know, again, I just love that whole thing about bringing an artistic sensibility to inaccessible material. I just think that's such a great, you know, uh, it's like, yeah, what a great, you know, please, Hollywood, try that, <laughs> you know, and mm-hmm. I think some people are, like, I, it's funny, I was thinking about, um, like, who's doing that now, and, and, you know, I think that's kind of like what Reese Witherspoon is doing with her, with her producing projects, is she's optioning these books that are doing really well with people, like Little Fires Everywhere, and um, Where the Crawdads Sing, um, I'm not quite sure who she's putting together with Crawdads, but you know, it's still, a, it, it can still work, you know, that, that, that approach.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I do have to, I, I totally agree. And I do have to mention a couple of films that you meant that you mentioned in the article, a little gem called girlfriends, which is really, oh. I think the mother for Lena Dunham's girlfriends, uh, you know, for her series. Totally. Uh, totally. And, uh, and, um, you know, Melanie Melanie Mayron gives probably one of the best performances of her career, and uh, and just you feel for her. You, you're you're totally on board with her, and it's heartbreaking. But it is just really a uh, a neat little film.
1: It is, and it's a it's it's kind of an underrated, under the radar film. And again. It, it gets yeah. left out. Like, that's, it, that's another example of who gets left out of that Easy Rider Raging Bull narrative because, yeah. you know, there were women making films. Not a lot, but there were. You know, we, yeah. Elaine May was making films. Um, uh, Joan Micklin Silver was making wonderful films. The actress, Barbara Loden, um, who was had been married to Elia Kazan, she made an extraordinary film in 1970 called Wanda that was, it was like, you know, it, it was Cassavetti's, you know. Oh, yeah. It was up there <laughs> with Cassavetes in terms of its naturalism. And um, unfortunately, she died very young and wasn't able to direct another movie. But, um, and then Girlfriends came along later. That was a 78 film. And Claudia Weil made it. And she had actually been a direct, uh, documentary director. And you can really see that in the film because it's a very yeah. observational film. You know, it's not, it doesn't feel like it's been written it feels like it's just happening, you know, and that she's just there to observe it. Um, and like you said, Melanie Mayron is just delightful as this young woman in New York trying to become a photographer, trying to find love. Her best friend has just gotten married. And it's kind of about, you know, the the effects of that on the friendship. Um, but it's really about a woman, a young woman, kind of just finding her way and finding her voice. And it's yeah. just utterly captivating. And it has influenced, I think, Dunham has said that it's a big influence. Oh, yeah. and, other, and Greta Gerwig, actually, yep. just coincidentally, before I even knew I was going to be writing this story, when I interviewed her for Little Women, I think she had just, um, Claudia Wilde had just been at a Little Women screening, and Greta was just going on and on about how much Girlfriends meant to her. And you can really see Girlfriends in Frances Ha, you know? Like, yeah. there's a direct line there. And you can see it in a lot of Nicole Hollis Center's movies, you know, like Walking and Talking. I mean, it, 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 it's had a very long reach. Um, mm-hmm. And it's it's just a beautiful little movie. I
0: do want to mention also before we go, Claudine, uh, a, a oh, neat yeah. little film that probably was the the spawning ground for uh, the first black uh, situation comedy or comedy drama mm-hmm. in Julia. Uh, also with Diane Carroll and her, mm-hmm. her and her guy in this was James Earl Jones, and uh, that came out in '74. And I thought that was a groundbreaker, especially you know, in the Sea of Shaft and all the other black exploitation films, it was uh, kind of a breath of fresh air.
1: Oh, totally. And again, you know, when we think of African-American filmmaking of the era, you go right to black exploitation, right? Because they right. they were hugely influential and very successful, but they did drown out some wonderfully, you know, that kind of mid-range um, I say middle brow, not at all pejoratively, you know, just mid-range, uh, ap- approachable, warm family dramas and comedies. And Claudine is the best example. And it, she's, uh, she, Diane Carroll plays a single mom raising six kids. They yeah. are hilarious. I mean, the mm-hmm. family life is so funny and tart and kind of, you know, they're they're fighting and they're scrapping and they're talking back to her and she's talking back to them and it's just, the rhythms of daily life are just so beautifully captured. And then, you know, she starts to date this wonderful man played by James Earl Jones, who is horrific yes. and also very funny.
0: He's a brilliant yeah, actor.
1: It's, it's just, he's a brilliant actor and, and tonally it, it, it's just, it's just brilliant. You know, the way they captured all the fun, the fun, the humor, the drama, the seriousness, the pain, the struggle, yeah. it's all in there. And, you know, interestingly, speaking of the landlord, Before I saw The Landlord, I had not really known about this actress named Diana Sands. Oh, yes. She blew me away. She's in The Landlord. She is absolutely stunning and mesmerizing. Mm -hmm. And apparently, I was talking to Lawrence Hilton Jacobs, who played the son, the oldest son in Claudine. And he said that Diana Sands was initially supposed to play Claudine. Um, oh, and then wow. she fell ill. Um, yeah, she got very, very oh, ill wow. and ended up dying of cancer. But she, oh, that's and again, right. like, like Barbara Loden, lost way too soon. We didn't really get to see what she could have done because she would have gone the distance. I mean, she was an absolutely yeah. fascinating, I mean, wonderful actress. Diane Carroll is brilliant in that role. Yes, she is. Um, And I'm just, you know, but but it does make you like, An interesting, what if, like if Diana Sands had done that, like I just, you know, I I really want to pay tribute to her because she was she was just a terrific, terrific actress.
0: Well, in closing, you summed it all up beautifully. And I'm not going to, you know, so I want people to read this. But essentially, I guess if you could use one word for today's filmmakers is don't or a sentence, don't be afraid to experiment and go for it. You know, that's what's missing right now. It's, you know, these, the thing I see about movies now is that a boardroom decides what to do instead of the filmmakers deciding what to do, because that's where the money is. And then, as the money men, they'll say, we'll get so and so to direct and he'll make the kind of movie that we know he can make, rather than yeah. saying, hey, let's take a chance on this guy, give him this material. Really, the only one studio right now that's taking a chance on some people is probably Marvel. But other than that, the I was major say. ones. That's they
1: do. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: They, they don't, everybody else plays it safe. And, you know, it's like, you know, how's, what's the cue score? What's the audience going to like? What's, how does this exactly. test? And it's like, oh my God. If that would have happened in the 70s, these great movies would have never come out.
1: I know, and I think you know to your point about the boardroom. We we were so lucky that the boardroom had Robert Evans in it, and it had yes, Danny it did in it, and it had you know yes. and it was the it was the great good uh, sense of of the corporate guys like Charles Bludorn at um, Gulf and Western to give Evans. The reins and just say do it. I trust you. You know and like that was a magical partnership. You know in terms of a business oh, yeah. partnership. But then yeah. that the, they just have great. You know what it comes down to is taste. You know they have great taste. And like you know and and that that art plus accessibility thing that 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 Peter Bart perfected. They are doing that now, but they just do it. They do it for comic book movies like. Their idea of accessible is so narrow. I think that's the problem. So that, yeah, you do get a Ryan Coogler directing Black Panther, and he does brilliant things with it, you know? You know, I mean, it's wonderful. but, But I wish that they would just sort of widen the net a little bit when they think about what would appeal to audiences, because I think we'll go to more than just comic book movies.
0: Oh, yeah. Well, you know, another person to mention, too, is Alan Ladd Jr., who really fought. Yes. He literally fought off the boardroom to pull the money on Star Wars, and he he just kept fighting for the movie, literally literally fighting them off at times. And um, and look what happened, you know, it was the, probably right. the best decision of his career.
1: Yeah, and and I also want to give him credit. He he was very supportive of women. You know, he there were yes. really a whole bunch of female producers who came up under his tutelage, and he deserves yeah. a lot of credit for that too.
0: Well, we could go on forever. It was, it it is a, a very rich decade, and I certainly, especially those of you that didn't live through it, to check it out and and kind of look at these amazing films, and to see how much they influence the films of today, because their influence is still being felt by young filmmakers. It's like if you're a film student, you got to see, you got to look at that decade and see what a young Martin Scorsese did without a budget. And 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 George Lucas and, uh, you know, and Steven Spielberg with a shark that wouldn't work. I mean, it's really amazing to see that. All right. Well, thank you, Ann. Always a pleasure and great article. It's at WashingtonPost.com. Best of luck to you. Please stay safe during this whole mess we're going through right now.
1: Same. Same to you, Tony. Thank you. And thanks to all your listeners, too. I hope everybody's staying safe and healthy.
0: And I'm glad you are well. I'm glad that, you know, that you sound like you're the usual Anne, and that's important. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Check out Anne Hornaday's writing at WashingtonPost.com. This is Tony Tolado. Until next time.